listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. This episode is brought to you by the McKinsey Global Institute. Hello and welcome to this episode of the McKinsey Podcast with me, Simon London. It is no secret that the world's economic centre of gravity has shifted decisively to the east. Before long, Asia will account for more than half of global GDP. But less widely understood is how this shift has affected corporate Asia. How have Asia's companies grown? In what sectors are they clustered? And importantly, how are they doing in terms of value creation? For an overview of corporate Asia, I caught up with McKinsey partners Chris Bradley, who's based in Sydney, and Jonathan Wetzel, who's based in Shanghai. Chris and Jonathan were actually together in Shanghai for this conversation, and I spoke to them from my base here in California. So, Jonathan uh, and Chris, welcome to the podcast, and thank you for joining. Uh, Glad to be here, Simon. Thanks, Simon. Great to be here. So you're both working on a project to get a clearer picture of the the scale and performance of Asia's companies. Um, Chris, why why don't you start? Just just describe the research for us and some of the key takeaways. So the way we looked at that was we compiled a database of the 5,000 largest companies in the world over two different periods of time, 10 years apart. So we looked between 2005 to 2007, and we looked between 2015 to 2017. And we asked ourselves, well, how's the composition of that global 5,000 changed? And what does that tell us about the geographic centres of, of corporate profitability? And what we found there was that Asia went from 28% of the world's capital base to 40% over this 10-year period. And what that means is that more than half of the growth, more than one in every two new dollars of investment that went into corporate uh, went into corporates, actually went into Asia. And most notably, it's you know China, which was only had 429 companies in the first period, but now has over 900. But what's even more startling is that just the average size of these companies, they've just gotten so much bigger because the invested capital over that same period of time in Asia has tripled. So a vast amount of capital invested in Asia and, and a lot more Asian companies, notably Chinese companies, now in the global 5,000. But what about the, the returns on that capital? If you look at the corporate performance in aggregate of Asian companies, how are they doing? Well, in a word, um, not quite as good as the rest of the world. That, uh, maybe that's a few words. But uh, the, uh, it, it, the returns on average are lower than you would find um, in the EU and certainly relative to North America. What, what's striking is the relative outperformance, if you want, in terms of invested capital and the underperformance in terms of economic profit. Uh, so, uh, over the past decade, big North American companies delivered 9.3% annual ROIC, uh, Asian companies 7.0. Um, and if you think about the overall economic profit, $245 billion for North American companies, whereas Asian companies, economic losses of $206 billion. So, in short, a 
fairly massive level of value destruction uh, from Asian companies. Just before we go any further, just make sure I'm clear on the, the what the terminology means here. Yeah, sure. I mean, the main the main two numbers we'll throw around to talk about corporate performance that get all companies on an apples for apples basis is return on invested capital or ROIC, which is simply the net operating profit less tax divided by the total invested capital of the company. And the other measure we use is economic profit, which is a measure of um, how much profit is left after you deduct the cost of capital. Okay, thanks for that. Uh, sorry to be dense. Now, it's not that it's not that all Asian companies are unprofitable. It's just that they're overrepresented among the companies that are unprofitable. So, for example, um, in the bottom quintile of economic profit globally, um, rather than having the 20% of companies you, that you'd expect, Asia has... 25% of its companies down there. And in the top quintile of economic profit, rather than the 20% of companies you'd expect, Asia has only 15% of its companies there. So it still has substantial champions, extremely high performers, and we'll come to it later, real pockets of value creation. But there's just a drift slightly downwards towards more companies that are destroying value. So what do we know about why this is the case? What explains the overrepresentation of Asian companies in that bottom quintile of uh, economic performance? Well, I, I think that there are, there are probably at least three things going on here. Um, one is the, uh, well, Asia overall, because we're speaking again of a, of a region with huge disparities, but overall is still less developed, particularly in the higher value added, higher technologies and uh, higher value uh, segments of the economy like technology and, and pharma, um, which do uh, account for a substantial portion of the economic profits of uh, North America. So that's underrepresented. Uh, and what's overrepresented um, are, would say, domestic services, and uh, which basically is construction and real estate, infrastructure, utilities, the things that one does at an earlier stage of economic development, and so it's very capital intensive in particular, uh, and commodities like energy and, uh, and, and metals and mining, which are also investment intensive, which tend to appear at earlier stages of economic development. So those two sectors are overrepresented uh, in, in Asia, and uh, we'll come on to this, but particularly in China, uh, and they account for the majority of the losses. So if we look at the troubled 200, you know, a lot of names like XYZ State Construction Company and XYZ Highway Company, and so, uh, plus XYZ in raw material and mining corporation. If we just map it out by the numbers and we look at, well, why is it that the US has a higher return on invested capital than Asia does, it breaks out pretty accurately that two-thirds of the gap is driven by capital allocation to different sectors. So there's more capital going towards lower performing sectors. But there's still a gap of one-third that is within sector performance is lower inside of Asia. Um, but there's also a really important dynamic story because it's, it's not just about um, where capital is now, but where it's being allocated over time. And here I'd highlight a really big difference. So in the US, for example, over the last 10 years, there was 6.1 trillion of new capital put into companies. So that's net invested capital. Um, and 11% of that went into sectors that earn below their cost of capital, so that destroy value. Um, China, on the other hand, added almost 10 trillion of invested capital onto its balance sheet, net net invested capital. Um, but 80% of that amount went into sectors that earn below their cost of capital. So what we've seen is this capital allocation drifting globally 
towards lower returning sectors. And I think, as Jonathan says, part of that is because, you know, there's a sector story that that accompanies your S-curve of development. But there's also clearly something in there around capital allocation. By the way, the rest of Asia is is better than China, but not that much better, because in the rest of Asia, excluding China, 68% of their net new invested capital went into sectors that earn below their cost of capital. So there seems to be something that's keeping America at the top economically, and at least in terms of corporate performance, which is around being really, really strong in sectors that are high returning. This is th anything related to science, health, technology, um, and consumers, um, while at the same time having an e economic system that directs the marginal dollar towards better opportunities. Is there also something related to the, the balance of listed versus unlisted companies? Because we know, right, that um, publicly listed companies tend to deliver higher returns on capital. Um, and also we know that unlisted companies, you know, family-owned or state-owned enterprises tend to play a, a big role in, in Asian economies. So I'm wondering if, if that's part of the explanation. Yes, in that sense, our, our findings for Asia support the global finding or the global trend, uh, perhaps um, just more so. That uh, that listed firms uh, overall the ROIC uh, is uh, substantially higher globally. Uh, it's 8.4 percent than unlisted firms, which is be 5.5. So that's that's a global number, and uh, and Asia looks very similar, eight versus 5.3. So I mean I think that that that's absolutely true. The reality is that much of the unlisted firms, but the majority of it, in fact, are in China. <laughs> Um, so that there is a potentially a particular characteristic of unlisted firms in China versus versus elsewhere, but it's in line with the global trend. Uh, and uh, in fact, if we look at Chinese listed firms per se as a class, they had the same more or less ROIC as North Americans. So what makes China really unique in this regard is just the scale of that unlisted sector. So just to put it in perspective, there's about 12 trillion of invested capital in China overall. Um, and a bit over half of that is inside of this unlisted sector, which is just orders of magnitude bigger than most other countries. And just to help you put a rule against that, that 6.2 trillion of invested capital inside these um, unlisted Chinese firms, that's more than the entire capital base of Japan and India combined. So we've seen this, you know, this is a massive global phenomenon. We call it the tsunami of capital that's kind of got, that's hit into China. Um, and has, at a fundamental level, explains a lot of why the economic profit globally has gone, you know, 10 years ago from a fairly health, healthy 726 billion to now globally being minus 34 billion. So your average company in the globe now is earning below its cost of capital. I want to be careful about also when we talk about flows and, and, and tsunamis and so forth in a sense that, you know, first of all, the Chinese financial system is relatively autarkic. It tends to stay by itself and less, foreigners own less than 6% of the financial assets in the country. So whatever has been going on here, it's been sloshing around pretty much inside the Chinese bathtub. Um, right. It's not, it's not a tsunami <laughs> come from somewhere else. That's a real yeah, yeah. yeah. So the consequences of that mean it's also going to be largely visited on the Chinese economy, though. Um, but that that said, yeah, I mean, I think we've certainly had, well, for the beginning of this period, post-financial recession, you had a massive in increase in debt and, and uh, capital outflow. Debt went from 150% of GDP to somewhere closer to 250%, really never saw that kind of a rise anywhere else. So there was, there was massive credit. Um, 
uh, truth be told, for the last three years, that's now uh, the, the the hangover is here, and we've been living through deleveraging in China for the last three or four years. So that's that's so that stopped, but the expansion did definitely happen. And where it happened was in these again value destroying uh, capital intensive sectors of the economy. That's what took the cash, and China's been spending like nine percent of its GDP every year on infrastructure, and so that that has been going out the door, and clearly not those. I mean, as the numbers show, those those projects have not been returning their cost of capital. So, Chris, before we go on, I just want to pick up on on something you casually dropped into the conversation just now. Um, you said that the average big company globally uh, is now earning below its cost of capital, or you know, less politely, destroying value. So. Is that just the impact of the averages on what we're describing here in, in Asia, or are there other factors at work? I think it reflects the fact that revenue growth is harder and harder to come by, and the world is becoming fundamentally more competitive at a time that the world is actually kind of re-platforming itself. Like it's either on one hand in the old world, the global renewal of infrastructure that's been long overdue and needed, at the same time as the production system of most companies is completely changing and towards a different stack of technology. So there's all these reasons why it's becoming harder to get incremental revenues at the same time that you're fundamentally having to re-platform businesses. So taken together, globally, 10 years ago, you would need 80 cents of invested capital to earn a dollar of revenue, whereas today you need almost a dollar 10 of invested capital to earn that same dollar of revenue. The other thing we know about the global balance sheet is that um, intangible assets are growing at about one and a half times the rate of tangible assets. So even though tangible assets are outstripping revenue growth, so the, the hard physical capital is, is growing faster than revenues, uh, the intangible capital is growing even faster. So while the global balance sheet, as I mentioned before, is growing at 8% uh, per annum, the intangible part of that balance sheet is growing at 9.2% per annum. So we are seeing more goodwill from more transactions, more intangible assets, but that doesn't explain the phenomenon entirely. Yeah, yeah, fascinating. And, and you know, we, we should absolutely come back to that on, on, on a future podcast. For now, though, let's segue back to Asia specifically. Just, just maybe give us the good news story. Where is value being created at scale in Asia? In, in what countries and in what sectors? Well, I mean, there's pockets of enormous value creation in Asia. Um, you know, if we just go by the numbers, you'd highlight, you know, there's 23 billion of accumulated economic profit in the Japan capital goods sector. So with companies like Hitachi, Mitsubishi Heavy in there. Um, the South Korean IT sector, there's 19 billion of economic profit in there with uh, companies like Samsung Electronic being an example. Um, the China IT sector, $23 billion of economic profit in there with, you know, household names now like Tencent and Alibaba. Uh, notably, actually, the Australian banking sector's in there, $10 billion of economic profit. has been a stable and notably strong performer over the time. And perhaps controversially, there's $62 billion of economic profit that's parked in China financial services. Financial services tends to be Apache sector across the world in terms of value creation, but kind of, at least by the reported numbers, China really stands tall there. And we haven't mentioned India yet. So how are Indian companies doing in aggregate? 
It is certainly, first of all, a growth story. I mean, it has been, you know, it's appeared in the global 5,000 levels much more significant than where it was before, but it's still relatively small. Um, so, you know, on its way, uh, 150 companies today uh, with re real outperformance in pharma, in IT. Uh, but on the other hand, some some sectors where there is this, this issue of well, how are we allocating capital and why doesn't it get a return? Um, financial services stands out, um, as does the energy and material sector, saying these are areas where uh, simply the sector has underperformed its uh, cost of capital. However, I want to stress that there is still a lot of great uh, company stories here, uh, and that when we look at the actual new companies, that many of them are newcomers uh, out, of, out of India, there's a lot to be talked about. So a similar story, perhaps overall, in terms of the level and rate of development and how capital is being allocated, different role for the financial services sector, perhaps, than in other economies, but growth and uh, capital intensification, as we've seen elsewhere. What about mergers and acquisitions involving Asian companies? What are the, the patterns and the trends in, in M&A if you step back? What's striking is the greater share, the shift of the transaction volume towards Asia. So Asia has risen from, give or take, 16% of transaction volume at the beginning of the period to 31% at the close of the period. So that's striking. As to what that transaction volume is, it's, it's still largely east to east. It's uh, transactions that are taking place within Asia and mostly, uh, well, potentially mostly domestically within within countries in Asia. That said, there is a, the most rapidly growing portion of the whole thing um, is, if you will, east to west. And uh, so that's growing at 8% over the whole period. So it shows that these uh, Asian corporate forms are globally integrating and they're doing so a bit you know, faster than perhaps might have been expected. But there's another special call out to Japan as well here too, is, which is particularly uh, got the lowest share of M&A that's domestically focused. In fact, more than half of M&A in Japan is outbound. And, you, you know, newspaper headline stuff like uh, Takeda buying out Shire, for example, you know, this is kind of happening all the time with Japan. As we see, Japanese companies kind of both get a bit more confident, but also get a bit more realistic about how to create value in a long-term deflationary environment. So I'm conscious that we've been talking at quite a high level, you know, lots of numbers and trends and so on, which is good. But before we run out of time, I just want to make sure that we bring it down to a, a level that's sort of actionable. So, Chris, let's start with you. You know, for executives or indeed policymakers listening to this, like, what are the takeaways? I think there's three things, Simon. I, you know, the first one is, this is a great reminder that the fundamental question that CEOs face in their strategy is where to compete. Because we see that fundamentally you can tell two-thirds of the story based on sector capital allocation. And at a macro level, that means making sure the institutions are in place to get capital flowing to the right places. At a micro level, it means getting resource allocation right within a company. And then the, the second message, I think, is this idea that Asia is overrepresented in the bottom quintile firms, so that set of firms that kind of dis disproportionately destroys economic value. So I think for policymakers and for CEOs in those sectors, there's really a question of, okay, what's it going to take? What conditions have to be in place to get to cost of capital here? Um, what kind of industry rationalisation, what kind of performance improvement programs do we need to really clean up that, that bottom quintile? And then the third one is, well, you know what? There's actually a lot of green spots in Asia. There's a lot of places where 
Asia is proving itself to be globally competitive. How do we double down on that? How do we make the greens even bigger greens? So I think there's some of the big takeouts that, that I would look at. Jonathan, anything to add there? Yeah, I would uh, certainly agree with Chris that, I mean, the, these are uh, the, the green spots for sure. And I think that's what is interesting about this Asian environment. So when we look at the top performers, why are they there? And what, what are the things that allow them to, in this you know, very skewed picture to stay at the top and, and uh, to rise to the top. That, I think, is an interesting story that we want to do more research on. And when we step back, you know, from the broader picture, I think it's clear that this is a, a region in transition. And with that transition, there is risk. I mean, that we have a very substantial portion of Asian corporate economies which are, let's just say, underwater, or they're paddling vigorously, but there is a liquidity challenge for a lot of these companies, that they are not returning their cost of capital, and so their existence is fundamentally dependent on the willingness of the providers of capital to continue to do so. That is a risk, and I think it's a macro risk, and it's one which every investor and every competitor should take into account as they're operating in Asia. But that said, I mean, this is, a, again, a region in progress. And it's, uh, we see that uh, the capital intensification being you know, supported by and, and resulting in economic growth. So you know, watch the space. It's going to be very exciting one way or the other. So I think we are indeed out of time for today. Chris and Jonathan, I know you both need to run uh, over there. But thanks so much for a fascinating conversation. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, thanks Simon. And thanks, as always, to you, our listeners, for tuning in to this episode of the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about this research and related topics, check out our Future of Asia page on mckinsey.com, or if you prefer, download the very splendid McKinsey Insights app. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, Visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.